Hi, I'm Jonathan Mann. And I'm one of the many Matts. And this is Digitally Rare, a show about digitally owned things now and when you're disco pilled. Um, we are very excited now here to welcome Evan McMullen, who I was just commenting, I literally know nothing about except that um, David Hoffman tweeted a, a video of her speaking at East Denver, and I was uh, just riveted by the stuff. So, Evan, welcome Thank to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here <laughs> with you guys. So glad I, to have you. So the way I thought we would start, normally, you know, we would we would start by getting like your background and like how you got into this stuff. But I want to start, just start by disco pilling us. Like give us like the, the start by giving us like the paragraph, like the shortest version that you can to disco pill us. Give us that. And then I want to know everything about you and like where you came from, but give us that part first. Awesome. Well, first, I'm going to invite everybody to imagine a disco ball, your favorite Mm -hmm. disco ball in the the center of your favorite dance floor. That disco Mm -hmm. ball is reflecting, turning, shining light on us in all sorts of different ways. And that is exactly how we think about your identity. You Mm -hmm. are the center of the dance floor. You are the shining star that everyone is gathering around. And you should be able to reflect your identity and your data to the world however you choose. And when you you leave, your light should come with you. And that's the experience that we get to enjoy in most of Web3. We'll go to a dApp, we'll hang out, we'll do some activities, maybe do some swaps, maybe get an NFT. And when we leave, those assets come with us because Mm -hmm. we have non-custodial wallets that allow us the autonomy to have true ownership in Web3. Mm -hmm. But what's really weird to me is that in our magical world of Web3, when I go to a dApp and I connect my wallet, I do some actions, I hang out, I have some fun, only my data, or only my money rather, only my tokens, only my NFTs can come with me when I leave. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like in Web3, we've almost built a bunch of new silos, new data silos, where when Mm -hmm. we go into an app, we do some actions, the data that we create that's Mm -hmm. not on the public chain is stuck. It has to stay there in Mm -hmm. the app and it can't come with us. Mm -hmm. And so in order to enjoy the full seamless ownership of Web3, in order to eliminate the switching costs of trying new activities and to make sure that you never have to fill out a form again, we think it makes the most sense for you to take your data with you when you go Mm -hmm. to a new environment, a new app in physical space or in digital space. And so our definition of the metaverse at Disco is one where you can show up to any physical or digital environment and receive Mm -hmm. a personalized experience as a result of the parts of yourself that you choose to reflect to the world in that Mm -hmm. instance, because your identity is not a fixed and public thing. We are human beings who evolve and change and our organic existence needs maximally expressive ways to -hmm. show itself to the world. And Mm -hmm. public blockchains are not super expressive. Public Mm -hmm. chains are the best for data for which there is a double spend problem. Data that's Mm -hmm. appropriate to globally share with the world to make available to everyone on Earth and throughout the galaxy with an internet connection Mm -hmm. forever. And many parts of ourselves as people um, would be an expensive overshare. If we blasted yeah. that out to everybody in the, you know, intergalactic universe um, and asked them to hang on to that data forever. 
And mm-hmm. so Disco is going to give you a data backpack so that as you run through Web 2 and Web 3 on your amazing LARP that is your life, yeah. when you create <laughs> awesome data, you'll have a loot bag to put it in, to bring it with you. Because right now, when you make awesome data, you just have to leave it wherever you've created it because you mm-hmm. don't have that backpack to take it with you right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's yeah. I well done. And yeah. this is exactly why I was so excited to talk to you. Like yeah. all of that. But before, and there's so many questions I can tell Matt is just like raring to go. But I do yeah. now, now that we have that, because basically I want to like, I want to give the audience like, this is why we're talking to this person, which you just uh-huh. very aptly demonstrated. Let's uh-huh. go back now because I want to know all about you and what, where the hell do you come from? Mm-hmm. I lied a little bit. I did see, I went on your LinkedIn. So I saw that you mm. worked at Consensus. I saw something about Bitsky, I think, which yeah, we've Bitsky. had someone from Bitsky on. Yeah, Saya. So, so give us, uh, give us, yeah, Saya, give us like your, let's go back. Uh, how did you get into Web3? What brought you here? Who are you? What's going on? So to start, I'm going to invite everybody to imagine a little farm <laughs> in Ohio. Ooh. Between Cleveland this. and Pittsburgh, there are sheep, there are chickens, and yes. there's a little Evan running around, um, playing with <laughs> robots, building uh, building computer games, and learning about this thing called Napster. So when I was a kid, nice. I first encountered remix culture as a function of being able to get access to a world of music and content that was well beyond the reaches of the little farm where I grew up. Um, I was, you know, I, I grew up, like I said, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so I didn't have a lot of access to the culture, ideas, apps, technologies that um, we know and love today. And so when I first discovered this concept of being able to, you know, receive music from people I had ever never met before and um, be able to take those music files and mash them together to create new works. Um, immediately, my father, who's an intellectual property attorney who specializes in software, <laughs> explained to me, no, this is not how the world works. This is wrong. And so Whoa. when I was probably in, I don't know, maybe fourth or fifth grade, I had to make a presentation to my parents about the fair use statute and why <laughs> my educational and non-commercial pursuits of information constituted um, a, a fair and reasonable use of the technology. Wow. And so, uh, so that was, you know, pretty, pretty early on, my first encounters with what it meant for data to be free and mm. the fact that we had to look to the legal system to tell us what we were allowed to do or not do with the sick beats we found online. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my my first point of entry into understanding that there are limits for what we can do with information that are dictated by people who have never even heard this song before. Right. <laughs> and who, you know, who aren't engaging in this great community of creation that uh, that, you know, had had begun as a result of networked products. Um, mm-hmm. And so fast forward, you know, I, I get my first iPod. I get around the uh, the concept of, of remix mix culture. I'm able to kind of wrap my head around it a little bit more. Um, and then when I got to college, I started studying computer science and um, I fell in love with the free and open source software community, Creative Commons licenses and other legal wrappers we can use to make data more free. Um, so I thought, okay, this is this is pretty cool. You know, we can do more with this, but these are still legal solutions to mm-hmm. a technology opportunity. And mm-hmm. so um, 
my life changed dramatically when I had, um, you know, who I call the, the greatest professor of all time. Um, this woman, Elizabeth Stark, who now leads Lightning Labs, but at the time she was my computer science professor in undergrad. Um, and wow. she was living in Williamsburg, hanging out with all these cool entrepreneurs and <laughs> introduced me to the idea that you could just come up with a concept with your friends and you could just build it. Yeah. And that completely yeah. changed my idea around what was possible in terms of wow. delivering technologies that could enable these promises made by legal licenses and legal wrappers. Um, and so she was the first person to introduce me to Bitcoin as a censorship-proof network, um, probably around 10, 11 years ago at this point. Um, and I first began to learn about the Web3 ecosystem as... Uh, you know, a, a place where we could use technology and use code to enforce the kinds of um, restrictions and freedoms that previously were only possible through contracts. That's amazing. Really cool. So then you you got into Bitcoin, you, you mm -hmm. those, those doors were flung open. Mm -hmm. How did you get from there then to, to, to here where we are now today? What's, what? So I've got a series of unrelated gigs that I yeah. think, yes. uh, you know, other people might call a career um, in, in between. Um, yeah. But actually, it was um, because of, you know, my my awesome relationship with with Stark. And um, mm -hmm. it was actually around the, the first Obama election where you guys might remember there was a black and white video that was circulated um, to the, the sort of tune of one of Obama's speeches called Yes, We Can. Yeah. And people like Will I Am and Scarlett Johansson and you know the whole compendium of voices I created this that. awesome yeah. video yeah. that changed mm -hmm. the tide of the election. Yeah. Wow. And I, you know, that was a really that made a huge impression on me. Mm. And I remember going to Stark and telling her, man, I just saw this video and it is it is amazing to me how packaging information in a manner that is resonant with people can help them hear the same message in a new way. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite know, you know, how this linked back to the rest of my, my interests in, um, in technology. I, uh, so around, the, around that time, I was also I was writing my thesis on um, how people introduce themselves in digital spaces. So oh, my fun. love of wow. identity has, you know, goes back really far. So I was, wow. um, yeah. you know, spending my independent study funding on a World of Warcraft subscription so that I yes. could interview other players about their privacy expectations. So um, good. Spent a lot of time, you guys might remember Chat Roulette, <laughs> spent uh -huh. a lot of time on Chat Roulette, wow. learning how it was that users of that platform decided what information to share about themselves, what kind of trust yeah. cues they would look for in other users. Mm. Um, and so sort of all these ideas swirling in my head. And I thought, you know, I really need to understand how narratives are built, because mm -hmm. at the core of all of this technology is a story. Mm -hmm. How are people understanding what's put in front of them? Because mm -hmm. we can only use and appreciate what we can understand. And mm -hmm. so, um, fortunately, Stark was friends with the guy who had produced this video. Um, and she sent me out <laughs> to Los Angeles and said, go, you know, knock on, on Jesse's door. And Jesse Dillon, who's one of Bob Dillon's sons, um, he's right. an incredible wow. film producer, um, incredible, you know, master of narrative and storytelling. And so I spent a few years leading the story department at a global film production company under, under his leadership, um, wow. where I worked on everything from music videos and commercials um, in sort of the, you know, 
know, pop culture realm um, to taking, you know, some of those profits to underwrite the cost of sharing uh, incredible messages about the technology in our world, supporting everybody mm-hmm. from CERN and the Large Hadron Collider to um, lobby for basic science research funding um, to uh, helping IBM launch IBM Watson um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and working on a, a variety of other connected IoT and AI opportunities. Um, and then I actually ended up going to work with uh, with one of those partners um, who I had helped to kind of explain their their IoT system. Um, and so I joined a Berlin-based hardware consultancy um, yeah. and helped them develop. Then kind of got got from out from behind the camera and back into my safe home of systems design. Um, mm-hmm. And so I worked on the experience design for many early autonomous vehicles. Um, mm, cool. as well as early connected home products like connected mm. toothbrushes, early connected mirrors. Um, and that, for me, really solidified the importance of technologies further enabling our experiences in physical space. Um, mm. my, my great love for human-centered design and for yeah. beautiful interfaces um, really stems from my desire to have no interfaces because mm-hmm. I think the most intuitive way for us to move through the world um, is, you know, with our own human intentions and mm-hmm. the more elegantly we can design environments that respond to us, the more mm-hmm. joyfully and the more immediately we can interact with them. Yeah. Um, and so, so that, you know, that sort of set of experiences really solidified for me the importance of human-centered design, the importance yeah. of going to human beings and understanding mm-hmm. the challenges, frictions, and frustrations that they have so that the tools we deliver will eliminate friction and frustration and help them do the things they already want to do more mm-hmm. easily and more simply. Um, and so I, uh, I then, you know, answered another call from another one of my beloved computer science <laughs> professors from undergrad, um, went and joined the team at Berkshire Hathaway, where I helped them mm. develop the first, uh, direct to small business insurance product and launch that mm. out into the market. Um, huh. there are more Berkshire Hathaway team members who hold crypto than you would expect. Um, oh, certainly as partly, I, I would say as a result of my earnest efforts to onboard everybody to Coinbase <laughs> right. at the water cooler, um, but then, you know, after after spending quite a, a good deal of time in, in Omaha, eating a lot of steak and learning about the, the Berkshire machine, <laughs> I could no longer ignore the fact that I was spending my nights and my weekends mm-hmm. lurking on Reddit, on Twitter, showing up at hackathons, proofreading white papers. And at that point, you know, probably 2017 or so, like my soul had been taken over quietly for many years by crypto and I could no longer ignore the call. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's when I decided to go into Web3 full-time and focused on um, end-user, client-side, user-owned data so Mm -hmm. that we could really, you know, fulfill the promise of true ownership in our ecosystem. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that resonates a lot. I think the storytelling background is amazing. And one thing I remember from 2017 when digital identity and the sort of like um, all the stuff was coming to the, at least to my uh, experience, um, it was very technical. It was very like rooted in this like data sharing standard schemas. But I love the story you just told. And that feels like the right way to get this idea across and convey that. Um, like the potential of this, this backpack, this LARP that is life, like that's so good. And yeah, it's clearly that background in storytelling and narrative, like how you understand narratives is showing through now. It feels like the perfect, um, the perfect skill tree to have for a startup founder. That's really cool. Thank you, Matt. Well, and I, you know, I feel really fortunate because the story that we get to tell right now is a really fun one. 
Yeah. Right. We can't have fun together in the metaverse if the only thing I know about you is how much money you have. Mm-hmm. But we can have so much more fun together if I know the friends we have in common, the activities that we both like to enjoy. I know the incredible skill sets that, you know, Jonathan and Matt are good at. And mm-hmm, I know the kinds mm-hmm. of music they like to enjoy, the kinds of parties mm-hmm. that they go to. Um, or even, you know, from a very simplistic perspective, if we want our DAOs to be more than group chats with bank accounts, we ha. need to know enough about one another to solve more interesting coordination problems than treasury allocation. So totally, if we want to totally. you know, write a song together, we have to know which one of us knows how to write music. Because yep. a song that's designed by the richest people in the room might <laughs> not sound like a great song. Totally. You know... Um, the way the way that you describe this idea of disco and by the way mm. disco.xyz go there and Great put in name. your email uh, as as i have um yeah disco.xyz you know is um from the very beginning of this podcast and especially like back in 20, 2017 2018 matt was like super super into this idea of like self-sovereign identity and like we take all our data with us and all the stuff you're talking about and it's to me, it's it's been always this thing where I describe to people like, well, this is what we're doing now, and this is all the stuff we're doing in blockchain now. But like, here's the end goal, and the end goal that I was describing to people is exactly what you've described: of like, all our data, we take it with us. It's in the backpack. We go LARP in life. Um, although I don't like Matt says, I didn't put it that way exactly. Now, now I will. Now, from now on, that's how I'm describing it. But. Um, it, it seems to me, and this is the part that really got me, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 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 the the technology that you are talking about using to do this is not blockchain, is not blockchain-based. And um, that's the part where I was like, okay, something's blowing my mind here, so can we get into that part of it? Because that's that's the part where I was like, what is she talking about? What is going on here? Absolutely. So... I would say, you know, the the world of of your, you know, LARP that is your life. Most <laughs> of your life takes place not on a public chain. It takes place in apps, it takes place in physical spaces, it takes place, you know, in your in your recording studio, out with friends. And so for all those actions and opportunities that don't take place on a blockchain but still have relevance in our life, we should be able to enjoy the same kind of trustlessness, strength, and verification without having to forfeit a bunch of money and our privacy as a result. And so the sort of the the key feature, the key element of technology that has changed in the past few months to make this whole Web3 ecosystem possible, and just to get real technical for a quick second, Do it. EIP 712 uh, governs sign type data. And an update to EIP 712 now has given new superpowers to your existing public key. So it used to be that your MetaMask key, your Rainbow key, your Ethereum public key, whatever you know, blockchain public key you're using, that public key was only able to help you interact with the blockchain and, you know, sign on-chain transactions um, that were, you know, appropriate for public distribution. But now your existing Ethereum keys have a new superpower, which means that they can sign public data that goes on-chain, but now they can also sign private data. 
so that if someone knows your signing keys, you can write a secret message to them using the same keys that you already have in your MetaMask. And so Very what cool. this allows us to do is basically use your MetaMask keys like the smart zipper on your data backpack to decide what data comes with you, what you bring with you in a private way, as mm -hmm. well as deciding what data becomes public, what data put you put on a public chain. And so that's sort of the recent update that gives your backpack these superpowers is that you mm. now have a MetaMask style zipper where your mm -hmm. same signing keys can put things in your private data store um, as well as on chain. Um, now, if we think about, you know, what does that mean in the context of what the rest of the world has been up to while we've been hanging out on blockchains? Um, yes. I'm going to invite everybody to, you know, try to muster back to the early 90s when we first discovered the Internet. Um, there's mm. this uh, this crew of homies called the World Wide Web Consortium that defined <laughs> what it would be for us to connect as, you know, users of network products in this early internet. Um, and we don't really hear about the W3C, you know, they decided three W's went in front of a website, all those kinds of, <laughs> of good choices that help us do the things we love to do today. But what I think a lot of people don't know is that a couple of years ago, they got the band back together in a serious way. And the W3C looked around and said, oh, my gosh, we've got all these atomic networks. All these blockchains are popping up, just like the early intranets of the 90s. Mm. And they can't talk to each other. We have another network products problem. <laughs> we've got all these atomic networks hanging out, Bitcoin and Ethereum, Polkadot, Solana, Tron, if you roll that way. Everybody's kind of <laughs> on their own little well-connected, but it's an island on their own little islands. Um, and so, you know, we started to see technologies like bridges that are very costly and have a lot of risk surfaces, but help us to bring data and value from one blockchain to another. But the W3C looked around and said, oh, no, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so um, the two technologies that the W3C has brought us that are born from the legend of Web 2, but created for the seamlessness of Web 3, um, first, we've got decentralized identifiers. Now, decentralized identifiers allow you to take your uh, your existing public key, your Ethereum address, your Bitcoin address, um, as well as many other pub uh, public identifiers like an email address, an ENS address, a DNS record, a PGP key if you're from the 70s, um, many different kinds of identifiers from Web 2 and Web 3. So you take your Ethereum address, take your email address, take whatever that identifier is. You add a little bit of code to the front. So in the case of an Ethereum address, it's DID colon ETHR colon. Um, but basically, you're adding a little prefix, like putting a little hat on top of your address. And that little hat gives your address, that, that little prefix of code gives your address the ability to take on a new identity where your existing Ethereum address is now able to talk to all of those other identifiers. So when you take your Ethereum mm -hmm. address, you add that little code in the front. Your Ethereum address can now talk directly to a Bitcoin address, a Polkadot address, an email address, a website. And unlike a bridge, no translation is required. Mm -hmm. So let's say I've got an Ethereum address. Matt's got a Bitcoin address. I'm trying to send him a message like, hey, what's up? I'm getting pizza at eight. Let's kick it. Um, my Ethereum address can send what's called our, a verifiable credential, the second unit of technology we're going to talk about here. My Ethereum address can sign a message written to Matt's Bitcoin address in the form of a credential that says, you know, dear Matt, I'm getting pizza at eight. Let's kick it. Signed Evan. And I send that payload over to the Matt at the speed of an API. 
and Matt, because he's got his little hat on, he's got a DID with his Bitcoin address, he's ready to receive it. He can read that message right away at the speed of, you know, sending an email, at the speed of Mm -hmm. sending a tweet, at the speed of interacting in the way that we normally do in Web 2. And Mm -hmm. the magic of these verifiable credentials, they're kind of the, the message payload that is Mm -hmm. sent between different decentralized identifiers, regardless of what chain or Web 2 or Web 3 they might come from. Mm -hmm. Um, These little credentials, they're just signed JSON blobs, just a little Mm -hmm. encrypted piece of code, a little string of numbers and letters. But because they are written by one party about another party and signed, Mm -hmm. that means that like a diploma, if it's written about Matt now, it'll be written about Matt forever. Mm-hmm. So it's not transferable. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, these verifiable credentials, um, they can be readily verified by anyone, mm-hmm. meaning they're mm-hmm. independently verifiable. So, you know, unlike, let's say, a text record in ENS where I can fill out my Twitter handle as at Paris Hilton if I want, totally. and nobody can stop me. Nobody can tell me you're not Paris Hilton. Um, whereas with verifiable credentials, this attestation capability Mm -hmm. allows us to have more transparency into what that attestation means. So Mm -hmm. let's say I want to link together my Ethereum address with my Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. A verifiable credential allows me to make a handshake between those identifiers. My Twitter handle consents to be linked to my Ethereum address. My Ethereum address consents to be linked to my Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. So just a few other awesome traits about these verifiable credentials, the little notes that we can pass between any kind of blockchain. If you remember, you know, mm-hmm. passing notes in school when you were a kid, when you write <laughs> down a little note that you want to hand to your friend, it doesn't matter where your friend is sitting in the classroom, what kind of chair they're sitting in, what kind of sweater they're wearing. <laughs> right. They can always receive the little note that you hand them. And that's mm-hmm. the same with verifiable credentials. So these, attest- these signed attestations, little blobs of code, um, they're, it, they're saved just like a file, just like a PDF. So if I can yeah. send you a PDF, I can send you a verifiable credential. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we're talking about you know, how they're non-transferable. If it's written about you, it'll always be written about you. However, in Web3, it's really important that we control our autonomy, that mm-hmm. we have the ultimate ability to decide how we express ourselves using these credentials and other kinds mm-hmm. of data. And so that's why it's especially awesome that verifiable credentials can be revoked by their issuer. They can be deleted by their subject, the person that's holding them, and they can be revoked um, or yes, or sorry, they can be revoked, deleted, or set to expire. That's it. And so if I want to send, um, a birthday party invitation to everybody, to, to you all to invite you to my birthday so that when you show up at my house, you can expose a QR code. The bouncer can check the validity of that credential and let you in. I can make sure that those credentials are revoked or set to expire the day after the party because we don't need them anymore. And so um, when we think about the crypto primitives that we enjoy right now, NFTs, fungible tokens, mm-hmm. um, these assets are basically immutable. And so mm-hmm. we're going to end up with a lot of clutter in the future. Um, if we think about you know, the yes. public chain is like a, a scarce natural resource. And we are littering it with all of these single-use assets. Um, we're littering it. 
digital dust yes <laughs> exactly we have you know we have one earth like we have um you know one base chain for every chain that rolls out and the way that we think about the role of that storage um, dictates the way that we use it. So if we assume that everything in the world is going to go on Ethereum, that means we're going to put a lot of data there. That means we're going to spend a lot of gas fees. We're going to spend a lot of time waiting for blocks. And we're going to spend a lot of effort indexing that data for later use. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a very app-centric view of the world. Prioritizing availability of your data to feed apps so that they can continuously enjoy that free-flowing stream of information, um, that really prioritizes the app's preference for data availability over the human preference for control and consent. Mm. And so at Disco, we believe that the point of Web3 is to enable the fullest extent of autonomy and control as individuals that we might enjoy um, on the one hand. But on the other hand, that autonomy and control can also open up the greatest experience of seamless, free-flowing adventures that the world has ever seen. Because if we eliminate the need for you to show up, introduce yourself to an app, log in, tell them where you're located, tell them how tall you are, what your name is, what username preferences you have, what security preferences you have. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I probably spend a good 10% of my life filling out forms <laughs> and onboarding. Yeah, and so if we can claim that time back and we can let our data do the introduction for us, imagine all the awesome adventures that we can have together. Yeah, that's really that's that's the thing that strikes me as like the insane opportunity here is the idea of a human centered identity, which is so obvious when you say the words. Um, that's a complete rewrite of the Internet today. Right. Like this concept of like situational identity and like how siloed our identities are are right now. Our experience is like platform or app based and recentering it on the human is so natural and so obvious and so exciting. I'm so thrilled for you to hear that, or for yeah. you to say that rather, because, you know, I think this, this um, identifier-based world that we live in now, where our data gets assigned to an email address, our data gets assigned to a key pair, um, you know, it really doesn't take into account the fact that we as humans, you know, have a multifaceted existence that extends beyond our use of a single app. Yes. You know, sure, I have a Costco membership, but I don't wake up in the morning thinking about how I will consume things from Costco right. and go through my day planning to consume, you know, or, or <laughs> purchase or interact with things from Costco, right? That is a identity is not the thing. It's the thing that gets you to the thing. It's mm -hmm. the enabling set of characteristics that make your other activities more free-flowing, enjoyable, seamless, personalized. And so with Disco, we think that your identity should be logically centered around you, but mm -hmm. physically decentralized in the places mm -hmm. where it makes the most sense. And so, you know, Matt, as you were noting earlier, we're kind of inviting an opportunity to invert the internet so that you and your personal data backpack, your rocket ship, gets to zoom around to the places and the apps and the environments that you want to enjoy most. And when you show up, you're able to bring enough data with you to make that experience easier than it was before, cheaper, faster, more pleasant, and more connected than it was before. Uh, what is Disco? Tell us what, tell us what Disco, is it a Tell us what it is. Is it a protocol? Is it a thing? What What is it? 
So Disco is a vibe squad right now. We've got an incredible yeah. team all over the world who are building toward our launch in early April. So when, uh, when Disco first introduces itself to the world um, in a formal product way, you will be able to visit disco.xyz and check out our lightweight web app. So when you connect your wallet to Disco, the first thing you'll be able to do is start trustlessly linking together your public identifiers in a way that's private yeah. to you, but independently verifiable to anyone that you want to show. This is actually so super useful. Link yeah, together I love that. Your this is again. I feel like we're always doing this. This is Matt Bait. This is this is like yeah, 2018 yeah, yeah. Matt Bait. This is like this yes! is straight up. This is straight straight up. You know. Yeah, for those with exactly. familiar with their you Matt know, lore, the, yeah. the space between the chains. Yeah, that's good stuff. The space um, between blockchains is just as legitimately Web three as what is on the public chain. Yes. If we yes. think of you know blockchains as the roots of the trees in the forest of our universe, then the mycelia and the connective tissue and the nutrients right. flowing in between that is the infinite L two of the off chain internet. As, a giant roll up. <laughs> as someone who you know who's not like a technical person, Matt's the technical guy on this podcast. It 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 has sort of maybe always occurred to me that like it seems it always has seemed that like man the things that everyone wants to do uh doesn't seem like the blo like blockchain is is going to be is going to be the, the thing that allows this stuff really to happen because 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 there's all these constraints and there's all these trade-offs and in all order for this medium. you yeah. got to give up this and all this stuff and it um, and it sounds like what you're saying is that is that wow the the you know they got the band back together all the like most brilliant minds in network uh, you know how networks network uh, got together and f solved it basically more or less. I mean, they certainly gave us the tools to solve yeah. it if we want. Well, yeah. And so wow. now our great challenge is, you know, we have the technology, but yeah. do we have the willpower to prevent the surveillance dystopia that right. we are building toward by putting, <laughs> on the blockchain. Yeah. putting data right. on the blockchain? And so right. I think, you know, the best thing about blockchains is that they gave us key pairs that we can use yes. to do other yes. things. Yes. Right. So yes. my MetaMask address, my key, my blockchain key pair will yes. now allow me to communicate with you guys on any chain at the yes. speed of an API. Yeah, just that's because really we have so two cool. blockchain addresses doesn't mean we have to use a blockchain to communicate between them. Yeah, C can yeah. I ask maybe a dumb question? And Matt, Matt may already know the answer to this question, but are there are things though that we will want to do on blockchain on the blockchain, like like money and stuff like that, like like you were saying, like these kinds of that. Yeah, totally. Maybe NFTs and money are things that we want to do on blockchains. Would you say that's that's the oh, case? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Totally. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, blockchains are a super awesome tool for a very specific set of challenges. Right. So if you have a double spend problem with your asset, right. you're probably right. going to want a blockchain. That's a blockchain. Right. Yeah. Escrow, you want to write once, contracts. never erase. Yeah. That's blockchain. Totally. That's block Escrow, right. contracts, you know, you are cool with your data being globally available to everyone on Earth and in space forever and ever. 
right. you're going to need a blockchain. That's probably right. the best way to make that data readily available to that set of parties in that in perpetuity. But right. if you do not urgently need these things, if you don't need to create assets that can be transferred, mm -hmm. for which there's a double spend problem that you want to have globally available in perpetuity, you don't need a blockchain. Yep. You may be able to do things with a blockchain that extend beyond those capabilities. But, um, you know, in the same way that I, I think about roles on teams, I think about roles for technologies, do right. not do what you can do, right. do mm. what only you can do. Right. Mm. Uh, I want to go to specifically something that you called out in your talk, this ETH Denver talk that you gave that we'll link in the show notes. Um, uh, that that I think you know maybe we're we're going more in depth here than in that, but it's a I would highly recommend watching the talk anyway. Um, on this on this concept of soul bound NFTs, um, and uh, it's something I'm very interested in because I I've been thinking about this uh, I don't know since like August in this summer because I have this DAO that's a legal co op and um, the membership token in the co-op is going to be this PFP thing. And I want it to not be transferable. I want it to be the thing that we give to you when you join the DAO. And um, for like sort of legal reasons, it's like actually your, your token of membership and you can't sell membership in a co-op. Like that's not something that legally you can do. So I want it to be able to be like, it's sort of like yours. And, um, but this is interesting because, because here's the thing is like, you know, it brought up like, well, if someone leaves and they're no longer a member of the co-op, can, they can't delete that NFT then. Like, that's impossible. They could burn it, I guess, but it still exists um, on the blockchain. So so explain to me how, yeah, how we might make a soul-bound NFT. And by the way, so, uh, my friend, my non, uh, my my web three skeptical friend who who's we get in like very friendly arguments about was like soul bound NFT is like the worst possible phrase in the world. It, <laughs> you, you say soul bound NFT to someone who who's not that in NFTs and they're, they're going to look at you and like want to throw up all over your face. Um, but anyway, putting that aside, a non transferable NFT t tell us, tell us how we might better do this in your opinion on in this new paradigm. So NFTs were built to be transferable. Right. And so the concept of a non-transferable NFT immediately undermines the purpose for the primitive in the first place. <laughs> right. I'll just put that sort of as, a, as an initial yeah. disclaimer. However, it is very important in the Web3 ecosystem that we be able to confer rights and privileges that cannot immediately be sold or stolen or lost. And right. so... We are at this weird impasse where we want to value autonomy and user control, and yet the on-chain capabilities that we have with your, you know, garden variety blockchain do not easily permit the maintenance of privacy with the concept of, uh, you know, a long-lasting, even permanent trait or privilege that is not conferred to all of the other users. And so NFTs are, you know, a common technology that we reach for when we want to be able to grant privileges um, to people in the Web3 ecosystem because the Web2 tooling for NFTs is awesome. We've yeah. got Collabland that allows us to have, you know, token-gated access to Discord channels and Telegrams. We've got token-gated events and ticketing platforms, parties and content. But 
The challenge with NFTs is that when you give someone an NFT, um, they can decide whether or not they want to keep it. They want to send it to a different uh, wallet. They want to sell it. They want to, you know, gift it, whatever. And so NFTs offer a pretty poor basis for curating a community with intention because that community is pretty leaky uh, in terms of how you become a member of it if those assets are indeed the thing that's conferring those privileges. Um, and so non-transferable NFTs, you know, at first feel like a really good solution. Okay. NFTs can confer all these awesome privileges in web two and web three. We'll just make sure that when, you know, we give one to, to Jonathan, that he can't get rid of it because he's a member of this co-op and you legally can't sell your membership to the co-op. Now the, the challenge, the sort of deal with the devil that I, I describe in my talk is that if we want to prioritize the expedient delivery of our dreams of, you know, Jonathan being a member of this co-op, then we're going to use the tools that are easiest and simplest for us to achieve that outcome. And right now, that's NFTs. However, the consequences that I think we are not engaging seriously enough with non-transferable NFTs and NFTs in general are the fact that these very public assets um, don't tell us a lot about the wallet address, the public key that they're mapped to. Mm. So if you have a board ape, I on the outside without, you know, snooping into Etherscan, doing some digging, just at first glance, I cannot tell if you bought it, if you were gifted it, if you stole it, if mm. you earned it, if someone airdropped it to you. And so um, there's uh, NFTs offer a very weak signal about their holder. Like a t-shirt, you can't really tell, did I buy this t-shirt? Was it gifted to me? Did I steal it? Did Mm -hmm. I, you know, did I make it myself? Um, And so like clothing or hairstyles, beard styles or headphones and hats, NFTs are public traits that we curate about ourselves to show the world how we want to present, but they do not represent who we are inside as beings. They are not, you know, unextractable from our existence. Um, And I think that's really important. I think that the point of Web3, the point of having our own keys, is that we can control how we express ourselves to the world. Now, non-transferable NFTs are the opposite of self-sovereignty because they limit the way that we as individuals can express ourselves in the universe because non-transferable NFTs allow someone, perhaps someone that you don't know, Mm. to immutably and publicly map traits or content to your wallet address without your participation or consent. So if which happens else, all the, yeah. which happens all which the happens time, all the time, by the way, with, with, with transferable ones. And now we, we, let's get into the question of, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. So with transferable NFTs, if someone sends you an unwanted NFT, you can rely on the front end of OpenSea to hide it, but that puts a right. lot of pressure on the front ends. You can spend some gas to burn it and get it out of there, which, you know, un- is unfortunate from a financial perspective, but in terms of autonomy, you're still able to, you know, get rid of, of that unwanted content. Um, However, with a non-transferable NFT, someone can choose to map a token ID to your public address Mm -hmm. without your participation and without really any recourse for you to want to dissociate yourself from that asset. Now, some, you know, some of these assets might be able to be burned, but Jonathan, as you noted earlier, their history, their historical existence will still be marked in a public and immutable way for all to see on the ledger. Um, But, you know, let's say you receive an unwanted non-transferable NFT. Let's say it has illegal content in it. 
Um, I, as an outside observer, I can't tell whether Matt wanted that NFT and purposefully made sure it was there or whether it was unwanted spam sent to him by a malicious bad actor. And so that essentially takes away Matt's control over his expression of self because someone else is choosing how he is being interpreted in Web3 based on the association with these tokens, and he has no ability to intervene and halt that. Um, and even if they're working as designed, even if a wanted non-transferable NFT is being conferred upon your wallet address, um, onlookers cannot tell the difference between wanted and unwanted. And so let's say, you know, Matt ends up with a lot of really offensive, illegal content that's immutably mapped to his wallet. His only choice is either to, you know, hope that the OpenSea front end hides it for everybody forever, you know, until the end of the galaxy, or... Um, he's got to spend a bunch of gas fees and move the assets that he knows and loves out to a new wallet and abandoned his past transaction history. So it looks like, you know, now with his fresh new wallet, it's his first day on the Internet and <laughs> he has lost whatever on-chain reputation he has built up around that address. Um, yeah. And so it's for, you know, for this reason that concentrating activities around a single address um, mm -hmm. as is encouraged by non-transferable NFTs, presents a, a challenge for, for good OPSEC. You know, if you're putting a bunch of really important traits or you're mapping a bunch of important traits publicly and immutably to one address, that means mm -hmm. you can't rotate those keys. You can't yep. move to a new address. Yep. You can't, you know, regardless of whatever unfortunate circumstances have befallen you, if your mm -hmm. non-transferable NFTs are mapped to a given wallet, you have yep. to hang on to that wallet yep. in order to continue maintaining an association with those yep. assets. Um, and so what uh, what strikes me as a little weird is that every time I see the use of a non-transferable NFT, what I really see is someone grasping for a verifiable credential yes. and then picking the misaligned item next to that credential yeah. on the shelf <laughs> because it's a little closer for their reach. Mm, yep, so yep, like yep. a non-transferable NFT, verifiable credentials are non-transferable. Similarly, they allow, you know, a party to confer unique privileges, non-transferable privileges onto another party. But unlike a non-transferable NFT, verifiable credentials are private by default. And so mm. their subject can choose if they want to make it globally available to everybody forever, or they want to share it with some other form of granularity that's perhaps a little bit more private. Um, mm -hmm. And additionally, that, you know, that soul binding, that really weirds me out because yeah. I don't want other people binding things to my soul without <laughs> my consent. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's valid. Yeah. And soul no, bound totally. NFTs open the door and say, hey, strangers of Web3, here is Evan's soul. What would you like to bind to it today without her consent, without yeah. her participation? Right. And that gives me the ick. That's some like, you know, you know, like, like post-apocalyptic dystopian right. stage five clinger stuff. Like, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't want that following me around. And yep. if I consent to an eternal bond with some mm -hmm. other party, with some piece of data, with some trader privilege, that eternal bond needs to be under my control yeah. because, you know, the immutability of blockchains um, is only as useful as the freedom that it empowers in, in human users. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But if that immutability is used to diminish the freedom of users, then we have created a positive feedback loop, um, you know, into the readiest surveillance capitalism nightmare <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, your point about NFTs being the wrong container is what like really strikes me here, because it's like, yeah, an NFT is just a record of you owning it. Like, that's all objectness is, is you own it, you can send it to someone else and you can destroy it. And what you're reaching for is not that. I think what people are reaching for is um, it shows up in your wallet. It's a visible object that you own, but there's a better container for that. There's a VC in a specialized wallet software that shows it as a ticket to an event, as a whatever. Um, and then also the the poor assumption that people are making is that an address equals a person, but that's not how the world works. A right. human is multiple addresses. No. I have multiple addresses. Even a soul-bound NFT, I should be able to transfer between addresses that I control because those are still part of my identity. Yes. And so quickly you realize, oh, did documents or DIDs and like this larger concept, this larger data model of a human is what we're, what we're looking for. Um, the address is just one key pair that I happen to own, which I could use, discard, change, keep forever, whatever. Um, yeah. And, and it screams, it screams like, I want to solve this problem. And like you said, just reached for the solution that was the most obvious, but it's just like, once you start looking at it, it's like, oh, this is just not the solution you want. Like if you came up with this today, you wouldn't make an NFT. You're only doing that because it shows up in wallets and because it's like the tooling is good. That's exactly it. That's the tweet. That's the tweet. And I think like the more, yeah, the more that we, you know, take a step back and consider what is the activity that I'm trying to do as a person And then back into what are the tools on the shelf best suited to helping me achieve that activity? More often than not, you know, that exercise is going to lead you back to credentials over any kind of on-chain attestation or asset. Because the, you know, as you're saying, Matt, I am not my address. I am not my bank account. I am not my, what is the line from Fight Club? I am not my khakis. I am all the, all the, the all singing, all dancing shit of this world. And that means that, you know, I am more than my keys. I am more than the assets that I own. I am what I know. I am what I have experienced. And that cannot be lost with the loss of a password. You don't cease to be yourself when you get locked out of your MetaMask. And so that concept of identity as a fundamental human truth that cannot be captured in a single key pair, in a single data primitive, um, I think that idea is what we're really trying to push for at Disco, that in Web3, Disco is here to help you express yourself. And right now, you can only express yourself by spending money, which is a valid form of expression, but does not take into account the... Exactly. The, the full yeah. spectrum of human experience. hundred percent. Yeah. And I love situational identity as like a primary use case for this, because that's one thing that's quite nice about platforms and our sort of siloed identities right now is that we are free to be a different person on different platforms. It sort of lends itself to that. Um, and obviously no one wants to lose that when we move to a more human centered identity framework. Cause like I'm in the South now, so I've picked up a small, uh, Southern accent again. And like that, <laughs> that, that property, but digital is a very valid means of self-expression. Not, you know, there's also extreme versions like totally anon accounts. There's also like, yeah, this is all stuff, um, that y'all are clearly, uh, very aware of. But I think that that situational identity is like extremely important and, 
I think not visible to standard like users of the web. It's just a more natural thing. It's like, Oh, I'm different on Facebook. I'm different on Twitter. My humor is different on Instagram, like that kind of thing. Um, but that goes into the hard, like the data that you're generating, the VCs that you care about, the ways, the ways that one expresses themselves in a very technological concrete way. Um, yeah. Totally. <laughs> That's just the thought that was bouncing around. Most definitely. Well, and when we think about, you know, that expression of self, we might have a sort of a narrow way that we show up and present ourselves on Twitter that's different than how we show up and present ourselves at, you know, brunch with our grandmother. But it's important for us to be able to call upon the reputation that we have built elsewhere, even when we're not showing that side of ourselves in a given environment. So if I rock up to Solana, I'm, you know, I'm slanging soul, I'm buying NFTs, I'm having a great time. And then suddenly there's an activity that I could enjoy even better if I could call upon the reputation I'd built over in Polkadot. Disco will enable this portability Hmm. of reputation where you don't have to tell them. You don't have to tell the Solana apps what your Polkadot address is, what you've been up to in Polkadot. However, if your Polkadot address has some trait or privilege that you want to express or take advantage of, you are mm-hmm. able to do that without revealing the other name that you use for yourself, the other address, the keys, the mm-hmm. traits, the, mm-hmm. the you know, forms of expression that you use. Um, because just as we are human beings and we can call upon a single piece of, of information to our minds in any given situation, so too should we be able to enjoy the rights and privileges we've built around our various facets of identity without you know, showing the whole disco ball. I'm curious what you think about um, solutions for like the sort of civil resistance identity problem thing, like like Bright ID. We we do a lot of stuff with Bright ID and so, and my DAO Song of DAO. Um, it's it we we built a snapshot strategy that uses Bright ID to verify that you are a single human. It basically a snapshot strategy looks for a Song of Day NFT. And one day, maybe it'll look for a soul-bound other not-NFT thing that we've been describing here. But right now, it looks for a Song Day NFT, and it looks, are you verified on Bright ID? And if the answer is yes to both of those, then you get to vote. What it's Because it's one person, one vote in Song Adao. And so then you get to vote. Um, yeah, I'm curious what you think about about um, sort of identity solutions like those for, for the purposes of, like, making sure that people are human, essentially. So I think ensuring humanity is a very valuable trait for us to understand about, you know, one address or another. Um, I think Bright ID is very cool. However, I will say that, you know, I've been working on identity for a good 10 years and I can't get verified on Bright ID. So Jonathan, if you would help me <laughs> hook it up, that would be awesome. Um, oh, I can, what are, I can you know, help you. Matt, one Matt of the had the same problem. <laughs> one of the challenges is that, yeah. you know, if you are not already in the group, it's mm-hmm. hard to get in the group. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I've had difficulty being a person up to this point. In fact, <laughs> I've done that pretty well since the day I was born. It's just <laughs> that the metric for humanity um, is quite challenging, right? Because um, the social ties that you have to others, as with Bright ID, those are a pretty good proxy for ensuring that someone is a human being. Um, but what's pretty cool about verifiable credentials is that they allow us to conceive of what is a human 
outside of a strict definition of, you know, did you check this box? Did you complete this CAPTCHA? Did you, you know, do ABC tasks? Mm. Um, when we think about what a human is, what it, what constitutes a human being, um, another way to think about that is, um, has this party done a bunch of things that a bot can't do? Right. And so a collection of verifiable credentials that you have attained with your address by performing actions a bot can't do, that weight of reputation mm, mm-hmm. is a pretty strong signal that you're a person. So, for example, if you go, um, you know, you go on Medallion, the Ethereum ecosystem, and you engage in two, uh, two Discord stages, and you buy a bunch of merch from Millennium's website, and then you go to Rabbit Hole, and you complete a couple quests, you go to Gitcoin, you win a hackathon, and then you um, show up at Louis Vuitton, you buy a handbag, you receive a verifiable credential attesting to that purchase, no bot can do those four activities. And so the aggregate of your credentials attesting to increasingly um, bot difficult, bot impossible mm-hmm. tasks mm-hmm. is tantamount to mm-hmm. an anti-civil proof. And right, so totally. I think often when we talk about civil resistance, we talk about you know a single quantitative proof, is robot, is not robot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it becomes a lot easier to differentiate between bots and not bots as a result of their past actions. So that mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of carrying around a single credential that says, I am a person, instead mm-hmm. you carry around a reputation whose heft could never be achieved by a bot. And right, so therefore, right. in its sort of fuzzy set of capabilities, fuzzy, fuzzy set of achievements, um, mm-hmm. it is sort of conclusively evident that that party cannot be a bot. That's actually, yeah. And, you know, a bright ID could be, could issue a VC for your identity saying like, oh, bright ID thinks you're a human. And then a website is like, oh, I trust bright ID. So we can use that. And it's just one, that would be part, great. one Lego piece. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, bright ID, call me. I want to help you be able yeah. to do this. This would be awesome. <laughs> no, yeah. I, I was talking to them about it and, and, and they're very interested to, to talk to you. So yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's amazing. That oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I will. We, I can finally get verified on Bright ID because I've had nice. bad luck yeah. for their, their teaming yeah. concept yeah. for a long time. Well, their, and- their, their verification thing is that, to me, it's very interesting. And, and I actually kind of enjoy it for the purposes that we're using it in that I use it as sort of like a a, a, a barrier that people have to cross. This is mm-hmm. sort of an interesting thing because I – to sort of like – if, unless you're really committed to like wanting to be in this DAO and like do stuff, you're not going to do this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like it's a mm-hmm. sort of it's a sort of like like a metric out. for enthusiasm. Exactly. And 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 all you have to do, and I don't know if you've tried to do this, you go to a Zoom call, right? You go to the Zoom call, and they're like, "Yep, you're a person," and then you. That's all they do. They're just like, yep, you have a you are a human being, and then you scan. And then they hold up your thing, and they're like, "Scan this." And they scan it, and then and now you're verified. That's I mean that's, that's all you really cool. need. Interesting. I, I tried it a while ago through the rabbit hole quest, and so oh, perhaps it have been yeah. before those capabilities. But I mean that's that's pretty awesome. And and you yeah. know Matt, to your point, I think having um, multiple proofs from disparate right. sources attesting right. to your non-bot state yeah. gives yeah. an even stronger assurance than yeah. a single credential alone might. It brings to mind this this uh, push and pull between the complexity of a base thing, like a human infinitely complex, all these different identities, all these different ways of expressing oneself, and the power of legibility of like a single boolean like is a programmer which is not who i am but it is a part of me and it is a very legible way to say this thing um and your point Mm. about having this 
highly like this this large complex background and then in a specific context reducing that information losing the details but getting getting legibility um, at the application hyper specific layer is more true is more accurate than a single boolean yes or no uh, that is then like in a newtonian way sort of like solidified bam can't be changed loses like purposely and infinitely loses that background and now you're subject to the metric um that feels like so deriving that in like at point of decision feels more accurate um that's the thought that was in my head totally we think so too matt we're right there with you cool that's awesome Um, yeah well, I'm really excited. We're running. We're coming to the end here. I one question we always ask, and I don't know how into NFTs or not you are, but we are ostensibly an NFT podcast. Are there any projects that you've seen NFT or maybe otherwise that have made you super excited in the last? Uh, I don't know in the last little while. Oh my gosh! Well, Jonathan, I don't know if you know this about me, but the way that I first met Matt is that we got matching ERC721 tattoos. Oh, inked out. Last year. Yes, inked out. So got to put in a great plug for inked out. We, you know, commit to immutability because, of course, if we do not ourselves, how can we ask the rest of the world to do the same? (laughs) Um, So super super stoked on uh, inked out. Recently set up a multi-sig. We've got our vibes going. So that's super awesome. If anybody else is excited about technical standards as we are, get yourself an ERC721 tattoo. Submit your proof of ink and our governance votes will do the rest. Um, yes. But beyond that, I am also really excited about um, some new work that my friend Carson Daly has been developing. She is um, based out in LA, K-A-R-S-E-N-D-A-I-L-E-Y on Twitter. Um, she recently released her Genesis collection incorporating both poetry and photography, joint collaborations with other artists. Um, mm. And I am super inspired by her you know, continued vision to extend the capabilities of the NFT tech that we have in front of us. She's also um, just done such an amazing job of bringing together artists in collaboration, shared celebration of a really clear artistic vision. Um, and so uh, definitely recommend giving giving her um, uh, a look. I think her drop um, for 27 times um, just happened a few a few days ago, um, but definitely check those out on OpenSea. They're you know really beautiful, really interesting, and just love to see artists engaging at the protocol layer with the different capabilities of our technology. Um, I think Carson, like many other NFT artists, views NFTs almost as a sculpture as well mm-hmm. as a visual surface to transmit uh, information and imagery on. And so you know seeing the interesting technical decisions that artists make in constructing the code of their NFTs is always really inspiring to me. Totally. totally. We'll, we'll look yeah. that up and put it in the in the show notes. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Uh, where can we follow you on, on the Twitters? You are... I am at Proven Authority for <laughs> all of the people who love a good joke about Proof of Authority side chains. They're kind of there BS and so am I on Twitter. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and you can also follow us at DiscoXYZ on Twitter as well. And we are at Disco.Identity on Instagram and at Disco.XYZ on the rest of the interwebs. Nice. Amazing. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. I have a lot of FOMO around InkDAO. Um, one of these days, it's going to get us. so bad that I will have well, I will have to do it and get my first tattoo ever. Soon TM. Just, soon TM. Yeah. Soon TM. That's also uh, a really good but, tattoo to get. <laughs> 
that is soon tm uh, soon um TM. probably nothing soon tm um, probably. <laughs> and uh <laughs> you can follow matt at one of the many mats that's with the number one you can follow me at song of day man matt you want to take us out yeah i'll do it we need a new season uh well, everybody, get nifty. You gotta get nifty. Get in nifty. Here. Get, get, get nifty. nifty. <laughs> <laughs>